Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, thank you so much. Good evening. Uh, and thank you so much, Mark, and to everyone at Global Minnesota for, for the kind invitation uh, and the export coordination of this event. Uh, it really is such an extraordinary group. I've been learning about all of the members and all of the supporters. And it's, it's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to address you all here uh, on this virtual platform tonight. Um, had I given this, and I'll, I'll share my presentation in a moment, but let me just preface it by saying that had I given this talk just a few months ago, uh, I think it would have looked very different from what I'm planning to say today. Uh, it's so much is changing in the relationship uh, and in the global landscape for that matter, really on a weekly, if not daily basis. Um, and for those of you who have read my article in Global Decisions, you already have a good sense of the main points that I tend to generally offer audiences during these sorts of talks. Um, I note, for example, that China's relationship with Latin America is a long-standing one. It's a historical one that dates back many, many decades, um, generally through sort of political engagement in the 1960s, 50s, 70s, uh, for example. But what one that really ramped up in the 1990s when China introduced what was called the going out strategy, uh, which promoted a number of different things, but mostly overseas acquisition of raw materials, uh, things like soy from, from Brazil and Argentina, uh, things like um, copper and, and other minerals from, from Peru and Chile. Uh, and then also the development of new export markets. Uh, Latin America has very, some very large countries, large export markets, and that was, originally speaking, at least a very important um, driver for, for much of the initial engagement with the region. Also, this, this strategy promoted the internationalization of Chinese companies, and these are factors that still you know, drive much of what China is doing in the region. That said, the, the relationship has evolved considerably over the past couple of decades, um, especially as China develops considerable capacity in a much wider range of industries. Uh, no longer is China just producing plastic buckets for, or, or other you know, low value added items for sale across, uh, across the world, uh, textiles, shoes, things of that nature but is increasingly active in, in uh, you know, a range of ultra high tech uh, industries. And there you, anything from telecommunications to AI enabled technologies, smart cities, uh, you know, electricity transmission, ultra high voltage electricity transmission. And so all of this still holds true. You know, the relationship is evolving very quickly. It's still, there's still some really important fundamentals that are, that are driving a lot of the engagement, but, um, you know, now I think we're really in the midst of yet another big transition. Uh, and so rather looking, than looking back uh, and talking to you about, you know, how things have evolved, what I'd like to do today um, is, is address, I think, a, a wide range of factors, geopolitical factors, domestic economic factors, local politics, uh, you name it that, uh, you know, that are likely to shape the China-Latin America relationship in the coming years. Um, I'm just making sure you all can hear me. My, my screen is a bit frozen, so hopefully all is well on the, on the communication side. But let me get started with the presentation and, oh good, thank you. Thank you, Carolina. 
great. So what I'd like to do today is to address three factors in particular um, that I think are likely to influence China, Latin America in important ways, really in the coming months and years. And some of these are already shaping the relationship. Um, there is evidence of that happening. Um, there are, of course, many, many factors, some of them sort of yet un un unpredictable, right? Um, that will shape China, Latin America dynamics. Uh, or even particular bilateral relationships. Um, and I've noted a few others here at the bottom of the screen as just some examples of things that we can consider um, as we think about what the relationship might look like in the coming years. But since I have less than an hour, uh, and I, I want to really be able to, to pay due attention uh, to these top three, you know, the extent and speed of China's own recovery, the nature of China's stimulus, right? What will China do exactly to promote recovery? That will have implications for the region. And then talk a little bit about regional views of China's handling of COVID and the various sub-factors that influence that. Um, so first of all, uh, as we all know, um, Latin America's recovery will, of course, depend to a considerable extent on the nature and speed of China's own recovery. And that can, of course, be said of the entire global economy. But as a result of especially strong trade ties and other really critical linkages between China and many countries in the Latin American region, um, these, two, these two actors are really intricately linked in a very special way. So much so that a one percentage point drop in China's growth amounts to a full one percentage point drop in growth in the Latin American region. So with that in mind, the good news is that China does appear to be getting on track, uh, back on track to at least a certain degree economically, with clear gains in manufacturing. Um, and you can see that here in the first sort of top left graph. Um, industrial production too, we're seeing a sort of V-shaped recovery in both of those areas and also on, on property in the property market and real estate transactions. Um, even so, uh, it is experiencing and has experienced already some cumulative losses that will have severe effects on the country's economic well-being in the longer term. Uh, here, I mean, there are many, many examples of this, but here's some data on job losses, uh, which are really... Uh, pretty extensive in, uh, in, in certain sectors in particular over the course of this year. This is the data over the course of the entire year. Um, also slowing export growth. Exports have been slumping um, and, and China is working very hard to try to boost those. And then of course, local debt will continue to be a pressing challenge for China's financial system as China considers how best to stimulate its economy and, and how extensively to do so. Um, and even despite China's recovery, uh, the region is still feeling the effects of slowing economic or slowing demand from China in certain sectors. This is especially true in the oil sector, um, and the effects are expected to worsen even as things get back on track in China. Uh, China is already at capacity in terms of storage of oil, having purchased a lot of very 
very low prices in recent months and so now is not in as much need of, of you know large quantities of, of imports um, so things are not looking particularly good for Latin American exports of oil at this moment um, to China in particular but globally speaking too uh, and even despite China's recovery, um, you know, there is also concern among regional governments at this phase uh, about the fate of many of the deals that Chinese companies have struck with Latin American governments over the past couple of years. And you can see here in this graph that in 2019, we saw a relative boom in Chinese greenfield foreign directment direct, excuse me, foreign direct investment announcements. There was somewhat of a drop in mergers and acquisitions, but a huge boom in greenfield announcements uh, and deals that were sort of initially struck with governments, um, local and federal across the region. Uh, and, and you can see that much of that was in infrastructure, uh, a port, one port in Peru in particular, the Chiangkai port took up a major portion of that. Um, but, and this was to the tune, as you can see, of about $12 billion, billion really a huge surge. Uh, but what will happen with these deals, right, now that all, everyone really is struggling with the economic implications um, and other, many, many other implications of COVID-19? I think it's likely that major public works and other projects will be delayed even at a best case scenario. On the one hand, uh, China faces numerous limitations to outward investment as it grapples with challenges at home. Um, but in any case, likely investors will confront very different realities on the ground in Latin America post-COVID-19 or in the midst of COVID-19 than they deal, did when deals were struck, uh, especially when we're talking about you know, the reality of, of carrying out a public-private partnership. And many of the deals that were struck um, in 2019, whether mergers and acquisition, well, mostly greenfield deals, but mergers and acquisitions too, um, had some, there were some that would be affected certainly by, by a lack of government intervention. Um, Chinese state finance has also, I think it's worth noting, uh, been on the decline uh, in Latin America for the past five years, way preceding COVID-19. So we've seen a slight decrease in certain forms of activity in Latin America, even before the pandemic struck. And that's not particularly good news when we're thinking about perhaps a resurgence of activity that might boost economic growth in the region in the coming years. As you can see here, Chinese finance from, from the big banks, China Development Bank, China Export-Import Bank, that give most of China's development finance, infrastructure finance, has really declined rather rapidly since 2015. We really we saw barely anything, um, about one billion in in finance in in 2019 um, to four four different countries, relatively small loans, and this compares in 2010 to about 35 billion that China gave that year, which was a peak peak year. So even you know despite COVID-19 and the many related challenges, we saw a, a decline in interest in Latin America in certain very specific ways earlier on. Um, that said, China Development Bank, which I, again has been one of the main financiers of especially infrastructure activity in the region, has indicated that it will provide some support for Chinese companies engaging in Belt and Road Initiative projects. Um, I'm happy to talk in more depth in the Q&A about what the Belt and Road Initiative is and what it means for Latin America. Um, but this 
bank has provided really no deals about uh, about that or details, excuse me, about that support. And of course, there's very little sign of it happening yet. So we'll see if, in fact, these many deals have the, have been struck in 2019 and 2018 actually materialize in the coming months or years. All of that said, um, if China's recovery is especially robust, um, or if certain industries fare particularly well in the coming years, uh, we could very well see an uptick in strategic uh, investment from China. Maybe the investment environments in Latin America aren't all that attractive to, to investors from other countries, to a range of multinationals, but for China, they may be willing to take the risk to, to uh, acquire strategic assets um, especially if other investors withdraw from the region. I think this would, of course, be limited to some very specific sectors. Uh, for example, electricity tra transmission in Brazil, where China already has a very strong presence. Maybe the oil sector to a certain degree, but really the conditions aren't there for that to happen at the moment. Uh, but one can envision other, other sectors in which you know, a, a greater presence, especially across supply chains, might be of interest to China. Agriculture is one of those areas that China has really been very, very interested in establishing a sort of uh, cross-supply chain presence for, for several years now. My second point, if you remember from, from the first slide is that future engagement with Latin America will also be shaped by the nature and extent of China's actual stimulus measures and reforms. What is China doing now to boost its economic growth? And what specifically will that mean for the Latin American region and for engagement with other regions across the world? Uh, China's stimulus is critical for China's growth, of course, which has implications for the health of the entire global economy. But the nature of China's domestic investment will also inevitably shape um, its overseas engagement, just as it has for many, many years. At the moment, uh, China has approved sizable support for investment in hard infrastructure. A lot of new airports are being built, a number of other, you know, sort of hard infrastructure projects, roads, rail, um, other things that, you know, uh, there aren't a lot of <laughs> projects that China still needs to do, but, but certainly provinces, local governments are coming up with plans um, as money is provided as China really emphasizes investment in hard infrastructure to try, and, to, try to revamp economic growth. But in addition to that, there is a lot of investment at the moment, or at least a, a considerable degree of attention being paid to what's called new investment infrastructure. Um, not roads, rail, bridges, things of that nature, but things like 5G and the broader digital economy, fixed, um, uh, rather public health, uh, but by that I mean a lot of pharmaceuticals and sort of high-tech uh, medical equipment and, and, um, and uh, uh, services, um, things like electricity transmission, automation that I mentioned. And the companies, you know, that fare best, not only in hard infrastructure, but in this new infrastructure area that are prioritized in the stimulus, um, will be among those that are best positioned to invest abroad in the coming years. Um, also, a focus on supporting the steel, uh, the steel sector, excuse me, as part of this sort of overall focus on hard infrastructure uh, could result in future overseas infrastructure investment um, as China looks to employ its excess steel capacity. And so here, 
just to, to give you a sense of kind of how this has worked in the past, um, China, you know, China's stimulus after the global financial crisis in 2008 was heavily based on, on hard infrastructure development at home. Later on, once those companies were, were you know, very adept at, at doing infrastructure and had run out of projects at home, they took their expertise overseas. And we saw a lot of that in the Latin American region in particular, but also all over the world. China was also experiencing excess capacity in the steel sector, which is heavily subsidized and will continue to be heavily subsidized under the current stimulus. And so as a result, you know, has proposed a lot of projects that involve steel and that would require the, the exportation of Chinese steel uh, to, to make them happen. Uh, one in particular, and this is a map that we put together, it's a bit dated, it's from 2018. These are projects that China has expressed interest in uh, since 2002. The ones in light blue are just expressed interest. The ones in dark blue are, are underway. They've been developed entirely, are operational, or else there's a shovel in the ground and some progress is being made. But some of them, like the one, that I don't know if you can see it very clearly on your screens, but there's one traversing, uh, really running from Peru over to Brazil that's light blue. It's a railway. It's called the Trans-Pacific Trans-Oceanic Railway. And this railway in particular, part of the impetus for this was to be able to, you know, for it to be financed by Chinese companies, with a, but with the condition of using Chinese steel, um, employing this excess capacity, um, in addition to a wide variety of other objectives, of course, that this particular railway would achieve. Um, somebody, speaking of infrastructure, is doing infrastructure outside of my window, so I hope you can still hear me despite that. Uh, very timely. Um, beyond this, uh, apologies. Um, so I think, you know, regardless of, of what we see in terms of stimulus in the coming, um, coming months, uh, we are likely to see probably some national champions emerge from this. Some of them will be the same companies that have been engaging Latin America for, for many, many years now, but there will be some others, not just in hard infrastructure necessarily, but in this new infrastructure, right? Things like 5G, smart cities, AI-enabled technologies, automation, electricity transmission, um, that will begin to go out when all is said and done, when, when China has recovered to a, to a sufficient degree, um, and we'll probably see them active in Latin America if things resolve, you know, in a timely way. Chinese innovations in these areas and the deployment of 5G um, in the deployment of smart cities, especially as they gain this extra practice at home, will also eventually transcend China's borders and will have implications for Latin America, both positive and possibly also challenging um, in, in the coming months and years. So certainly China has already expressed considerable interest in 5G delivery, deployment, delivery in particular of infrastructure related to 5G for, for a number of years now. Uh, Beijing is also looking to boost trade, Chinese trade at the moment. Um, we've seen a resumption of commodities importation to a considerable degree, but China is now focused on boosting its exports. Uh, I showed you before that exports were, were an area of, of, of a challenging area and continue to be for, for China. And so it's set up at least 46 new integrated pilot zones for cross-border e-commerce. 
Uh, it's also supporting companies to build and share warehouses overseas um, for, for sort of joint production and, and uh, to improve uh, supply chain, um, uh, supply chains and delivery of, of essential goods and is holding a number of online fairs, including, uh, you know, some with Latin America. Uh, this took place a, a, about a month ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and as a China Latin America International Trade Digital Expo, these were expos that were expected to be held in person, but have all been taken online. And according to Chinese media, at least, this particular expo was very, um, very successful and generated a, a number of new sort of transactions and commercial opportunities. Um, so all of this should at least have some impact on China-Latin America trade relations in the coming months and years, <clears throat> ideally also to the benefit of, of, uh, of Latin American um, operators. And then I would say, you know, that is the first country to grapple with COVID-19 and the first to emerge from the crisis. Uh, China is also in a unique position to provide medical supplies, um, knowledge also, and technologies to countries across the globe. Um, at the same time though, uh, you know, some in the region are reassessing their dependence on China or single markets in general uh, for critical health and other national security related supplies. Um, these sometimes conflicting factors could all result, I think, in some lasting changes in global pharmaceutical and other supply chains. And of course, it's important to keep a close eye on that um, to understand the effects of, of near sourcing, you know, a push for near sourcing on the part of, of, of companies in different sectors. And finally, I would say within this sort of second area, right, the uh, China's approach to debt restructuring will also have some important implications uh, for certain countries in the region. There are two countries that are among the more heavily indebted to China, uh, Argentina and Ecuador, uh, of course also Venezuela, uh, but that even is a bit of an outlier. Um, Argentina and, and, and uh, Ecuador, their, their sort of debt that is owed to China is still a relatively small portion of their overall sovereign debt. So it's, it wouldn't be hugely affected, uh, you know, a huge effect on, on, on their sort of economic development or prospects if China were to restructure that debt, but it would certainly be helpful. And both of these countries are in discussions as I understand it, um, albeit limited ones, about the prospect of restructuring debt in some form. Uh, However, China has been pretty straightforward and limited in its approach to debt relief, um, but that could maybe change somewhat in the face of political pressure in the coming months, and perhaps as other, other countries, other institutions have discussions, really serious discussions about what it will take to get Latin American countries back on track, um, financially, fiscally. Uh, and in a place where they can begin to really recover in, in a, a wide range of ways. <clears throat> and then a third, the, on the th our third point, our sort of third factor that will, is likely to shape China-Latin America, relations in the coming years, I think really much will depend on how the region ends up viewing China's handling of COVID-19. As we all know, uh, the Trump administration has been very vocal in its criticism of China, both before COVID-19, of course, and now in the midst of the pandemic, 
essentially blaming China uh, for the spread of the virus. And it's not really alone in this. We've seen other, um, other countries uh, join in in this criticism, adopting even some of the same language that the U.S. is using. Um, certainly, you know, Australia has done this to a degree within the Latin American region. Brazil really uh, has, has in, in some cases, even parroted uh, what we've seen coming out of the Trump administration. Um, and so there is some agreement, at least, um, uh, on this point, if not, or else, you know, a, a mutual effort to deflect attention away from, from what's happening domestically in these countries. Um, at the same time, views of China in the U.S. have worsened considerably during this presidency. Um, and this you can see here on, on this particular slide. This is, these are some recent findings, I believe from April of 2020, uh, from, from Pew Research. And you can see that there is really a considerable unfavorable impression among uh, a number of different subgroups in the US, right? Um, including among Democrats, Republicans, those with college degrees, those with, you know, with, um, with higher, higher education degrees, uh, and of you know a range of wide range of, of age ranges, um, and this really these numbers are, are significantly worse for China than they were even a couple of years ago. Uh, so you can see really the deterioration of U.S.-China relations is not just at the government level um, among the leaders um, of the two countries, but really is happening at a lower level too among among. The populations and this is something that we haven't typically seen in the past usually the the tensions take place at, at a much higher higher level um, to help uh, so uh, to the extent that uh, you know we see more of this rhetoric and it's very likely that we do it's worth wondering you know or asking the to what extent uh, U.S. messaging will have an effect on, on beliefs, on views of China in the region. And that's still a bit unclear, but certainly, as I mentioned, some countries have adopted a similar stance to the U.S., at least among the leaderships in those countries. Um, to help ensure positive views, and this is a horrific slide, so please bear with me, but I'll explain to you what it is. Um, to help ensure positive views of China and its role in the pandemic, China has donated extensive equipment to Latin America uh, and also services. It's also sold a lot of equipment uh, to the Latin American region really since about March. Um, and these are, I just wanted to give you an, a sense of the scale of this activity. We've been tracking this um, all the way along. And we've tracked over 200 uh, announcements, instances of donations or sales of medical equipment or diagnostic services to Latin America since March. There was some, you know, very minor activity before March, but really between March and now mid-May, it's been a continuous donation of all sorts of different supplies. And here the color coding refers to um, different countries. So you can see that some countries are receiving a little bit more than others. Um, but across the board, really, uh, you know, China has reached in some form nearly every country in the region. Uh, and this includes limited outreach to Taiwan's allies in the Northern Triangle in particular, also in the Caribbean, and to Paraguay, um, which is the only country in South America that has diplomatic ties to Taiwan uh, rather than mainland China. 
Um, in fact, a group of Paraguayan senators uh, requested that the president cut ties with Taiwan a couple of months ago, noting the need to work more extensively with China on coronavirus virus relief. Uh, so we really are seeing, you know, these efforts to engage more extensively with uh, with the region through so-called uh, mask diplomacy as an effort not only to shape the narrative on, on China and the coronavirus, but also perhaps even to achieve other critical objectives such as lessening Taiwan's influence in, in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Interestingly, in South America, Argentina uh, has been among the top beneficiaries of China's mask diplomacy, but we've also seen a lot going to Brazil, including very recently, despite uh, some real tensions between Brazil and China at the moment. Um, as I kind of uh, alluded to, in addition to these donations, Chinese diplomats have also sought to shape, really shape the narrative on, on um, China and COVID-19. This is not just taking place in Latin America, but across the world. And here they insist that the origin of the virus is still unknown. Um, although one particular Chinese diplomat in the foreign ministry has pointed directly to the U.S. as the source of the virus. Um, they've, uh, it, they, all, they indicate also that, that China handled the crisis responsibly, openly, and in a timely manner. And then that China is committed to helping the rest of the world get back on its feet. And China, of course, reinforced this commitment by offering to uh, to fund through the WHO, the World Health Organization, um, assistance, global assistance on, on COVID-19, uh, helping with recovery across the world. Um, in addition to the very concerted effort to spread these messages, often through social media, through op-eds, through uh, calls to leaders, you name it, really a wide range of, of platforms, Chinese dip diplomats have also actively challenged any public commentary linking China to the pandemic. Uh, the Chinese embassy in Brazil publicly feuded um, with the Brazilian president's son and his education minister. Here you can see uh, that um, Eduardo Bolsonaro, the, the son of, of, the of the president of Brazil, uh, blamed China very explicitly for the coronavirus um, and also made some statements suggesting that China had controlled supply of, of protective equipment. Um, and in response to this, the Chinese embassy also took to Twitter to suggest that Eduardo Eduardo Bolsonaro had contracted a mental virus during a trip to the United States, um, noting the similarities between his, his narrative, his commentary, and that of US, some US officials. Um, the Chinese embassy in Lima also lashed out at Peruvian writer um, Mario Vargas Llosa, a very famous writer and member of the Inter-American Dialogue for suggesting that the virus originated in China. Um, and that a different system, a more democratic system, would have handled things a bit differently than China did at the onset of the outbreak. Um, this is happening, of course, this, this effort to, to combat any sort of uh, statements that are seen as erroneous are, is happening elsewhere in the world, too, including in Europe um, and, and even Africa. This rather heavy-handed approach to, to Narrative shaping is a very clear departure from the way that Chinese embassies have handled messaging in the past. Uh, it's a much more public and aggressive form of engagement. Um, 
and you know is accompanied by the opening just very recently of a number of Twitter accounts on the part of Chinese embassies in March, April, May to be able to communicate all of these messages very um, directly with with local audiences. Um, all of that said, you know, I really do believe that Chinese diplomacy at the moment will at the very least uh, showcase China's capacity for global leadership and also highlight some of the more advanced medical and, and other technologies being developed by Chinese companies. Uh, Huawei is one of the main, Huawei, a major Chinese telecommunications company, is one of the main providers of donations to the Latin American region. This is, of course, there is some altruism um, associated with these donations, and uh, much of them are equipment, but others are, you know, are PPE, for example, but Others are AI-enabled platforms that really showcase China's and Huawei and Huawei's in particular um, capacity uh, in in tech and in tech solutions. And I think part of the rationale is for these particular uh, donations to to perhaps be an entree, uh, an opening for future um, investment, future cooperation with countries that may be interested in adopting. Huawei services in the coming years. Um, and anecdotally, at least, I think there seems to be a real sense in the region that China, and not the US, um, has effectively taken the reins in this global response and would, would likely you know, effectively do so um, in, in future global responses to crises, to be they pandemics, you know, something related to climate change, or any other large-scale disaster. Um, and so I, I, I wonder what your impressions, of course, are, are on that as well, but certainly in my discussions uh, across Latin America, that does appear, appear to be the case. And I think I'll leave it there. I mean, there are many other factors, obviously, that are going to shape this relationship, and we can delve into those, too. Um, but let me stop there, and so, so we have sufficient time for, for Q&A. Thank you, Margaret. It's an excellent presentation. So glad to hear you. Uh, I think I'll, I'll begin the questions right away since the chat is full with, with good ideas and good comments. But first, I wanted to say thank you to Mark and to Tim and Carolina for uh, inviting me to participate. I'm a native of Minnesota and a, a longtime member of Global Minnesota. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be involved. Um, some of the questions on the chat relate to the Belt and Road. Uh, could you give us a little more detail about what the Belt and Road Initiative really means and what it looks like in Latin America? We understand it's rolled out in Africa and Europe, but how does it look in Latin America specifically? I think you're muted, Margaret. Apologies, let me unmute myself. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the Belt and Road, yeah, I mean, it, it really came about, uh, you know, in 2013. Um, it was intended as a Eurasian initiative uh, to really extend infrastructure across the Eurasian region. And again, as I mentioned, to achieve a wide range of objectives, um, some of them diplomatic in nature, some of them security related, some of them related to China's own economic objectives at home, right? The, the employment of excess capacity, providing opportunities for Chinese companies uh, that didn't have as many opportunities at home anymore, um, investing uh, China's reserves in a way that would attract 
you know, higher returns than maybe investing at home. So really wide ranging objectives. Um, and since then, though, has really grown to become a, a really global initiative. Uh, it's focused, as I said, on infrastructure, but also connectivity in a wide variety of different ways, people to people ties, uh, financial integration, um, digital integration. Uh, and so uh, we're seeing this sort of activity really becoming increasingly pervasive in a global way. Latin America was the very last region to be incorporated in the Belt and Road Initiative. It was in 2018 uh, after the Arctic. So <laughs> that gives you a sense of where Latin America falls in terms of China's broader global you know, uh, foreign policy priorities. Um, but it's still a very important region and, and, and helps China to achieve a number of objectives. Um, the Belt and Road, I mean, it's unclear what's going to happen happen with the Belt and Road now, right? Uh, there are these deals, these many, many deals that have been struck, you know, uh, in countries across the world, including in Latin America. Many of them are officially called Belt and Road projects, right? Big infrastructure, large scale stuff, um, are on hold. There's not a lot of talk about them right now. And so much will depend, you know, on whether the deals themselves will support some of China's reforms or some of China, or help boost Chinese growth at home. Um, and whether the, the companies, you know, that are responsible for carrying them out are going to be financially healthy enough to actually do that. It will also depend so much on what's happening on the ground in any given country. If there is chaos, if it's an unsafe environment, if the focus is otherwise, you know, then, then we may not see those move forward in, in a real way. But we have seen, you know, if China keeps focusing on steel and supplementing steel at home, which is, they just announced today, they're going to do it in an even greater way. China's going to need to be able to use that steel, employ it somewhere and get some form of return, right? And doing that overseas through rail development and the other things of that nature might still be a major motivator for BRI expansion. Right, right. And there's been some controversy when China goes into other countries with development projects, they don't use local labor. Uh, is that the case for Latin America, and do you see that changing? Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly been an issue uh, in the past. It really that really depends on um, on the laws in a host country, on how you know how strict they are about local the use of local labor, on uh, local content, right, uh, on all of these things, and and also how much leverage these countries have when when negotiating certain projects with China. If you're Brazil, where you have very, very strong local content regulations and stipulations, right, and very strong labor stipulations, and you're a big economy and China needs to work with you more, you're going to be in a better position to negotiate some of these things than, than perhaps the Bahamas. And the Bahamas was one of the more egregious examples of the importation of Chinese low-skill labor for, for our jobs that could have been done by by people in the Bahamas, right? Um, a wide range of people in the Bahamas. But still, yeah, we see a lot of Chinese labor coming. Most of it at this point, you know, given the fact that it's not really a good image builder for China to bring tons of workers, and they're very aware of that. Most of it is at the, the sort of uh, managerial level. Right, right, right. Excellent. Um, I, there's several questions in the chat about, uh, although this topic is China and Latin America, about the United States. Uh, it's hard to ignore the United States presence in, in the hemisphere in the world. And China and the United States have not had a good relationship over the past four years, most people would agree. 
what about after the election, if there were a new administration? Are Latin Americans looking forward to having a change? Or perhaps maybe they're benefiting a little bit from uh, some of the trade conflict between the United States and China uh, and stepping up and stepping in where others are or not. Yeah, I mean, a sort of worst case scenario for Brazil, I think, at this point is if this phase one agreement were to actually go through, right? So it's unclear whether that's going to happen. Certainly some of some of Trump's most recent tweets suggest that that may very well not. We may not have a relationship with China at all was, you know, one of them suggested that more recently. Uh, yeah, so I think regardless, China is certainly looking forward to maybe a change in administration. Um, but there, it's unclear, I think, to them what, what entirely that would look like, given that there is real agreement, bipartisan agreement on the need to be tougher on China. Um, in a wide variety of ways and to sort of rebalance the relationship. Uh, certainly, you know, Democrats tend to take a, a bit of a different approach to this than Republicans. But I do think if we had, uh, you know, a Biden administration, there would still be a, a tougher stance on China than perhaps we've seen before, pre-Trump. Um, I do believe, you know, the trade situation would resolve somewhat. That I don't think that we would have the same sort of, you know, extensive tariffs. Uh, there would be, I think, an immediate effort to try to 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 address some of the uh, some of some of the trade stipulations, some of the tariffs that have been put in place that are perceived to be damaging certain sectors here in the United States, or else to push forward at least certain phases of the, of the existing agreement. Um, but overall, I mean, even among, among Biden, you know, supporters and those who have worked for Biden in the past, there, there is a lot of support for a very tough, tough approach to China and for ensuring that you know, this level playing field language is something that transcends, that goes way is earlier than, than the Trump administration, right? Looking for a reciprocity, for an even playing field, ensuring that U.S. companies, but also other international companies, are able to compete in a fair and effective way in Latin America and other regions um, by ensuring a higher degree of transparency and making sure that Latin American countries are able to negotiate effectively and can hold any company accountable, be it a Chinese one or otherwise, for, for the deals that, they're, that are being struck. Um, and so we'll see. I do believe those particular initiatives, which are ongoing under the Trump administration, would be continued to a degree. Okay, sticking with the United States with this next question. Does the United States put too much emphasis on human rights when it comes to China? Oh, that's <laughs> well, certainly at the I moment. I know with that. <laughs> <laughs> certainly at the moment, we're not putting much emphasis on human rights at all. Although it is a bit of, it's been a bit baffling to me, frankly. Um, um, very selective, right, approach to, to, uh, to emphasizing human rights. A real focus on Xinjiang, for example, right, the sort of Western uh, autonomous region where, where Uyghurs um, have, have been treated badly by, by uh, you know, by Chinese officials, and there are a lot of reports of human rights abuses. Um, uh, that's been a, a, a sticking point for, for the Trump administration and one that they've highlighted, but then many others uh, they've chosen to ignore, not just in China and other, um, and, but other regions as well. I, you know, I do think um, that at least, you know, that I do think we will resume that same rhetoric, that same position um, that we saw during the Obama administration and even previous, you know, previous 
presidencies with respect to human rights. That that really hasn't hasn't changed all that much. But certainly, I mean, Trump's advisors, the the those that are Trump's China China advisors in particular, Navarro and, and many others have have suggested that yes, indeed. We have paid too much attention to human rights at the detriment of, you know, of, of other points of leverage and other things that actually can be accomplished to make the relationship a more balanced one. Um, well, I don't have a great, great answer, personal great answer to that question, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah, uneven as usual, I would say, right. Um, and when we think about Minnesota and its relations with Latin America, we think of trade. Uh, Mexico is our second largest trading partner. It's very significant a destination for uh, agricultural products, for example. We have a question here about the, the new NAFTA, the USMCA. How does that affect China? Um, and maybe throwing in another one of these is sort of, uh, how does the, the post-pandemic supply chain world affect uh, the opportunities for, say, Minnesota companies to start manufacturing closer to home instead of uh, China? Is there going to be a surge of manufacturing into Mexico from Asia. What's your sense of those two things, the USMCA and how China views that, and then how the supply chains and, and uh, global production might be reshifting? Yeah, I don't see, I mean, frankly, I don't see a huge change in the way that China would have, you know, used or taken advantage of the old NAFTA agreement into the U.S., the new USMCA. Aside from the fact that I do think, I mean, China is a major um, or, uh, you know, a major producer some of some of the intermediate goods that are, of course, used in, in auto, automobile manufacturers in, in Mexico and all over the world. Um, so far, you know, in, under, under NAFTA, uh, there was a situation in which, um, you know, a lot of the sourcing was coming from, from Mexico, uh, you know, from, from tier one producers in, in the automotive industry in, in Querétaro or wherever else. Um, due to some of the new stipulations, especially with respect to, uh, uh, as I understand, and I'm sure there are some of you on here that are much better, uh, much better experts than I am on this particular topic, but pickup trucks and things things like this that will make it absolutely impossible um, because of punitive measures if you do not source from within NAFTA to produce these things at value, at cost, right, and, and, and at efficient cost and efficiently and, and be able to sell them. And so I do think in those particular um, uh, instances, we'll see more sourcing potentially from China. We've also seen China investing in Mexico, particularly to take advantage of these agreements. And I think under the current USMCA, that would be there would be a similar draw. Um, but yeah, in Mexico, there are. Um, I mean, Mexico is well equipped, as I understand it, to be able to produce things like PPE and other sort of really critical supplies. And to the extent that there is more of an, uh, an emphasis on, on near sourcing uh, to, to be able to uh, reduce any risk in supply chains, and I do, this conversation is an important one it's ongoing um, and certainly this won't be the last crisis you know that we all encounter then I think Mexico is especially well positioned to to potentially benefit from that of course there are conditions that need to be in place to make that happen um, but certainly uh, yeah I think there are a lot of opportunities for, for Mexico and for companies here in the US to to think about certain partners in the Latin American region um, that would be you know uh, valuable partners in, in terms of diversifying supply chains overall. Right, right, excellent. 
You mentioned technology in your presentation a number of times, and I've read that China wants to, has made it a goal to be a leader in artificial intelligence by 2030. And I've read that Vladimir Putin has said that whoever dominates AI uh, owns the, uh, dominates the rest of the century. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you see um, Latin America being uh, sort of caught in the middle between global powers in, in, in the rates for AI and, and advanced technologies? And there's a specific follow-up question here about aeronautics technologies in specific. Is that a priority for China in acquiring uh, best technologies? Is that something it's after uh, in Latin America and wishes to acquire? Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's with respect to Brazil, perhaps, or? Uh, um, I'm sensing so, yes. So, with, uh, yeah, Brazil. yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, on the first question, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, the AI is, is the future when I read my, you know, stories about how robots are taking over the world. <laughs> no, but, you know, no, certainly whoever dominates AI and AI is, you know, is going to be affecting everything we do, Internet of Things. I mean, um, automation, everything AI will be will be involved and already is to a considerable degree. And so. Yes, I mean, and China is making major advances in this area. There are plenty of debates about who is the global leader at this point on in this particular area, but certainly the race is ongoing. Um, and China, I think, has, you know, especially in certain types of technologies and applications is far ahead of many others, including, for example, surveillance technologies and facial identification and a number of other areas. Um, so what does that mean for Latin America? I mean, it could mean great, great things. It could mean wonderful things if, if some of these AI applications are applied um, in, in ways that are, are boosting to local economies or are promoting of develop, you know, development or of, of social advances. Um, it could also just be that the Latin American region is a consumer of these products. It's a you know, market for, for whatever China is producing without much benefit locally and with really no, I mean, so much of the sort of power that one has with respect to sort of AI technologies is in the data itself. So is if there is no way for these Latin American countries, are the regulations are there, if the if the are not there, if they if the conditions are not there to ensure that that Latin America retains, you know, some of some sovereignty in over its own data, or else, you know, experiences a degree of technology transfer to to be able to also benefit from from the technologies themselves and from the creation or maintenance of these technologies then the actual benefit will be far more limited than it could possibly be so it's a real you know it's a real exercise in thinking about best policy practices and how to implement those before it's too late because this is happening very very quickly excellent um we have a large Ecuadorian population in Minnesota. I forget the number, but as well over 20,000 Ecuadorians live here. We have established and successful businesses founded by Ecuador. And we had actually a consul general, Silvia Ontaneda, here who did a great job for a number of years representing Ecuador. Uh, so it's not surprising we have a question about Ecuador on the, on the roster, but it's very specific. It's uh, on the multicolor slide that you had on medical products. Uh, do you have an idea of what share Ecuador was getting of that pie? In, uh, in compared to others? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think there were five transactions, if I remember something in that range, five or six, so much smaller than um, 
It was about the same amount as Bolivia. Um, uh, you know, but bigger, bigger, obviously, than, than Central America, bigger than the Caribbean islands, but small in comparison to other countries in, um, in South America. Um, Venezuela, I don't have, you know, I don't have great data there, but Venezuela is fairly limited too, as far as I could tell. Right, right. And then uh, I'm happy to send that actual data. Yeah. Well, that'd be fantastic. I'm sure that looked like uh, you need a magnifying glass to really dig into it. Yeah, it was more, more illustrative. Than right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, another question that comes up uh, is criticism about uh, China's environmental record uh, in the region. Um, that was in the headlines when Brazil had its Amazon fires. And uh, there's a lot of uh, pointing fingers, I guess, across the world against uh, each other. Uh, just tell us more about the environmental uh, situation in Latin America as it relates to China's involvement, uh, U.S. involvement. And, one of the questions here puts it well, uh, do we have any real choice other than finding a way to get along with China? Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the international rancor and what you, how you see that. Uh, who's the good guy when it comes to uh, Latin America and China and the US and environmental uh, concerns? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that, that either the US or, or China is, is, is a poster child in this particular respect right at the moment. Um, uh, and there are, I mean, when you speak with environmentalists in the region and here in the US too, there is considerable frustration with both, both governments, both, both countries and, the, and their track records and what they're doing at home and then also their lack of support for, you know, for these major activities or crises, um, addressing these crises abroad. Um, so what can be done? Yes, I think, I mean, Latin America has better, very little choice but to get along with China and the United States, frankly. I mean, both are critical economic partners, um, political partners even in some cases. Uh, and so, you know, it's challenging for these countries because they're walking a fine line between the two. On the environmental side, it's more about creating the conditions, frankly, at home to ensure that whatever actor is involved, whatever investment is made, um, whatever you know, decision is made at home by whatever sort of interest group, that it will be very hard to have a considerable impact on the environment, or at least in terms of investments, that there's a really extensive review process in place and a strong enough civil society and a strong enough uh, regulatory capacity to be able to ensure that you know that efficient that the environmental impact assessments are done well and are shared they are transparent uh you know that that there is there are enough eyes on the ground when the project is actually happening that there are partners involved that there is an independent um review of of the project you know at different phases it's in its development that the finance whether it comes from china or from anywhere else has certain conditions attached to it um, environmentally and socially right all of these things really need to be in place and when they are in place in latin america they're the outcomes tend to be pretty okay when they're not though um they we've had some some real disasters and you know in places like it's not just about them being 
being on the books, right? These are these regulations on the, being on the books, but about them being enforced. Um, and so there needs to be, you know, enough pressure um, and accountability and transparency and agreement on all of this uh, for uh, for for best outcomes. And that's not necessarily an easy easy thing to accomplish, especially when countries are going to be trying really hard to grow economically again. And I think the environmental situation will worsen as a result of that already. We're seeing backsliding in certain regulations. Uh, there are ways though, and there are groups also in China, you know, that are working really hard to make this happen on the Chinese side. So partnerships with them is also quite critical. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, we've got more questions, but we've run out of time.